In today's episode, we open up the book of Mark, chapter 6, starting with verse 7. Jesus sends out his disciples on a mission of preaching and healing, but our passage takes a dark turn with the chilling account of John the Baptist's beheading. This juxtaposition between the disciples' empowered mission and John's tragic end highlights the profound challenges and sacrifices faced by those who bear witness to the truth. Good morning and blessed Reformation Day. Today is Tuesday, October 31st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, we're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727 or email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a Facebook message, and I'll try to get your question or comment out on the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest for this morning to help us look through our text. It's the Reverend Dr. Mike Nielsen. He's the pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Barron, Wisconsin. Good morning, Pastor Nielsen. Uh, Are you there? I am. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's great to have you on the program again. How has life been treating you? It's been good. A little without this uh, white stuff that's falling in Wisconsin, but I guess... (laughs) We're going to happen to have that. Oh, yeah. Well, it comes with the seasons. We're having the same thing here in Minnesota. I I think it got pretty chilly down there in St. Louis, too. But, um, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we go ahead and just dive into our text today? But before we do that, would you start our time together in prayer? I can do that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, we give you thanks for your word the word that's been handed down to us from the generations before us, the word that's been translated into our language. And on this day, we give thanks uh, uh, for those that faithfully uh, got us to this point, especially the uh, reformers of the 1500s, where where Luther translated the word into uh, the native tongue of German, and from there, it's, it's continued to be passed down and translated. And we continue to pray for those that are translating your word. And Lord God, as we uh, look at this text today from Mark, we ask that it would be a blessing that we would uh, be able to uh, glean some insight. Um, and yes, there is that, that, that uh, juxtaposition between Uh, the sending of the apostles, and also the death of John. So we ask that you would be with us today as we hear and study your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it was really only by coincidence, but what an appropriate text for Reformation uh, Day, because in this text, especially with John, we see sort of the results of step, uh, step standing up for the Lord's word to, to speaking truth to power. John experiences the negative results of that. Uh, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, are headed out, and they're going to face all kinds of persecution. So it certainly connects with our own history. Uh, oh, you know, absolutely. When we, yeah, when we last left, Jesus said, 
A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then he went about and he was teaching in all the villages. Um, anything else that people should know before we get into our verses for today where he calls the 12? I don't think so. I think let's let's just dive in this morning. Let's do it. Starting with verse 7 then. And Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, well, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, that's the end of verse 13. It's also the end of our, well, first half of our lesson for this morning. So Jesus calls up his 12 and he starts to send them out two by two. Take us through this, brother. It's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty important point in Jesus's ministry. This is. So, so Jesus, he's been, he's been serving, he's been teaching um, his disciples, he's been uh, back in Mark chapter 5, we had the uh, uh, raising of Jairus's daughter, the healing. He's also cast out a demon uh, and many other things that the disciples have seen and heard and learned. And now it's their turn to go out. Um, and, he, and he sends them out by twos, uh, which I thought this was quite interesting. Uh so my math would be that he sent them out in six groups of two. Uh, perhaps maybe it was because travel was more dangerous in those days. Maybe it was because of the whole fact that they needed witnesses um, for things. Um, but then th this is what he charged them to do. Gave them authority over the un clean spirit. So he gave them that authority to cast out demons as they went on their way. Um, I, I found it kind of interesting as I was reading through this is that that's what he gave them authority for and to do. There was nothing about healing the sick or raising the dead um, or anything like that. But then we get into 13 where they say um, that they did heal the sick. And so forth. But it was very interesting to see you have authority over the demons, the unclean. Right. These unclean spirits, just another word for demons or evil spirits that we see. Yeah, I found that interesting too. When he gives them the mission, he gives them that authority. But I suppose the authority to proclaim the word, it rests with God. And we, sim we simply are just doing what? Uh, we we're just speaking what he tells us to speak, and I'm sure that was their goal too. Uh, oh, oh, power over the demons, though, something that really only God can possess, and so maybe that's a little bit of a distinction too. I'm not that, sure. Pro probably. And, and then that. we also, and you mentioned earlier about why two, and yeah, I, I guess Jesus doesn't really expressly say why two by two. It makes me sort of think a little bit of uh, Noah's Ark, but also right. Deuter Deuteronomy, and you did mention this, you know, in Deuteronomy 17, it says, 
on the evidence of two witnesses or right. three witnesses. So this idea of having witnesses because of the important matters and, of course, those practical reasons too. But this is the purpose for which Jesus had for his right. 12 apostles to begin with, right? I mean, to, to, you know, to preach the word. Right, that's the word. their job. So and tell that, us a little bit about, though, he tells them to really kind of go, I don't want to say unprepared, but really underprepared in verse 8. Or, you know, or, take as nothing. I, or as I think about it, empty-handed, or he doesn't really want them to be self-sufficient. He wants them to rely on the communities that they go into. So, yeah, what does he tell them to do? Don't take anything except your staff, <laughs> wear sandals, and only wear one tunic. You know, nothing else. Don't take any food, no bag to carry your money, you know, nothing else. Uh, so, you know, if God would come to us today and say, hey, go, but don't take anything with, we'd be like, uh, are you sure? Uh, but I think it, it tells us that, hey, guys, you know, depend on me. I'm going to take care of you. But as, as I was thinking about this and reading about this text, I, I was brought back to the Exodus. Uh, when God told them, be ready to go. Uh, and they were told, you're, you're going to eat your meal, the Passover, that first Passover meal, with a staff in your hand. Uh, you aren't going to take any bread, but I'm going to provide it for you. Um, and we know that he provided them with the manna. Um, he uh, wanted them to be ready to move, so don't have anything weighing you down. And while we know about the sandals in the Exodus, they wore them for 40 years and they never wore out. Um, and they had their single garment to be on their way. So I, I thought that was quite interesting. But I think that the biggest thing in here is to trust in God. Uh, that it's like, I'm sending you out. I'm going to take care of you. I certainly think that that is the main emphasis, right? That, you know, listen, I'm going to send you out. You're, you're going to not rely on yourself. You're going to rely on me. I'll provide for what you need. I also think, as I, as I consider this, there's a practical reason there, too. Um, as, as someone who's traveled before, you know, you travel, you you go to your room, you, you have all your provisions. Um, the, the way we travel today is just so foreign to the way they would have back then. Uh, in the ancient Near East, it would have been expected for travelers to be taken care of, right? This 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 hospitality right. that the culture showed. Oh, and absolutely. So I think part of the decision for the disciples to go out in this full awareness that they're going to be in need, not only, and I agree with you, they're supposed to be relying on God, but it really forces them to encounter people, to enter into people's homes, to reach out to people with their needs. You know, we often think uh, as a church, we're going to take care of people's needs as a means by which to minister to them. Someone comes, they need help, we help them, we share with them Christ. In this case, it's really the opposite. They go out in need, and then as they right. ask for help, those who are willing to help them then get, I suppose, repaid by the message of the gospel. So I think right. that's definitely a part of it, too. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and really, Jesus goes on to say that uh, when he tells them what's going to happen when they go into these places. <laughs> right. You know, uh, it, you know uh, 
let me, let me go there. You know, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart. And if in any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust. We'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, he's there. He's sending them out to people's homes, you know, or these house churches that they probably had in the day. Uh, and they are going to rely on the hospitality of others. Uh, and yes, then we're going to, uh, they're going to share Jesus with them. And I'm assuming they're going to share Jesus no matter what, because we do hear there that Jesus says, well, even when they don't listen to you, shake off the dust of your feet and be on your way. Well, it, it reminds us too, doesn't it, brother, that even back in Jesus's day, even the moment they left their Savior's side to go spread the word, Jesus tells them there will be people who don't want to have anything to do with you. Absolutely. You know, that is not a modern phenomenon. People rejecting no. God, rejecting Christ. You know, this is something that they face too. And I, I don't want to say comfort, maybe that's not the right word, but boy, I certainly feel a little bit of camaraderie with the disciples. You know, we shouldn't expect any better than they did as we struggle right. to go and share Christ. Absolutely. You know, you know, in our country, we've had this, you know, safe time where we could go and, and, and spread. But I think now we're getting into a point where, where it's a little bit more difficult, um, where society's trying to, to, uh, you know, shut Jesus down, so to speak. And really, that's what they were trying to do, too. And we're going to see that a bit more later when we talk about John. Um, well, looking but, still here, though, he does say, right, if you when you go there, stay in one place, you know, so they're also building relationships in the places where they where they're ministering, right. which I imagine will come in handy. I think of my little bit of time in Haiti, uh, both as a teenager and as an adult later. My dad's he's been there a lot more than I have. But part of it was going there and then building relationships with people. So, A, you have right. a home base. B, you have people right. on the ground. That's certainly part of it behind of it too. But it is interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the shaking the dust off your feet though, because I, boy, a lot of people want to, uh, I guess, want to resort to that pretty quick in today's age. As we meet resistance to the message, how tempting is it is for us just to look at Jesus's words here and say, okay, fine. This is pearls before swine. This is a, a dust off the feet moment, but Jesus isn't telling them to just give up on anybody who resists you, or is he? Take us through that. What does he mean by shake the dust well, off your feet? You know, I, I, as, as I read this, you know, I, I've thought about this uh, quite frequently. You know, if any place will not receive you, then they will not listen to you. So is that the first day, the second day? Is that after several weeks? You know, we, we, Jesus doesn't tell us you know, how long this is supposed to be. Uh, but I think the disciples, they're going to know. They're going to know. And then you get this, this is more of a ritual act that's going on here. Uh, as I was reading about this, because I was a bit more curious, I, I was beginning to understand that this is more of a symbol of God's judgment against those who reject the gospel. Uh, and then it then it's talking about you know that these twelve these apostles should not even associate associate with the unbelievers dust. 
so when they leave, they're leaving everything behind. You know, they're going to reject Christ. So they're going to just leave it all behind. Uh, and as I was reading into this, he, he gave the same instructions to the 72. Um, Paul does the same thing in Acts. Um, so th this happens. Yeah, and, and I think another thing to consider is that as they're going out and they're proclaiming this message, you know, Jesus is, of course, going to be with them, but he's not saying, he's not saying that, you know, the first person who kind of doesn't like what you have to say, then just, you know, forget about them. They're not worthy of the gospel, or even the first person who might not necessarily want to take care of you. But as you pointed out, he's really pointing to a deeper rejection of the gospel. There is a right. point at which, there is a point at which a heart is hardened and you leave them with the message and you let the, you know, the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. Um, right. We see the same, we see the same language in the other, the other um, gospels. When we talk about right. this, like from Matthew 10, 14, shake the dust off of your feet. And so it also was a common practice during this time as a symbolic act of like a severed relationship. Right. So as right. you point out, it's not so much that the disciples are saying, well, I'm severing this relationship with you. It's really pointing toward God's, um, well, severing the relationship of those who reject him. Right. Right. So it says, verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. They're healing the sick. They're proclaiming the word. They're exercising the demons. Demons is something, or unclean spirits, we're going to see a lot of that in Mark. Well, we see it a lot in Jesus' ministry well, anyway. Right. But in Mark especially. But yeah, Mark especially. But But Mark highlights it, so we might as well talk about it here. Why do we see so much demonic activity around Jesus? I mean, is, is it the same today and we're just ignoring it? Or what do you think maybe it was a little I, more I, intensified? So, you know, the demons around Jesus, you know, what, where does Satan want to fight the hardest? You know, well, no, when, when Jesus was uh, on earth, <laughs> who really was the first guy, to, well, besides Herod and Satan behind that to try to kill him, but when Jesus started his earthly ministry, who was there to try to get him to fall? Not a demon, but Satan himself. Uh, so then throughout this, we see these demons around Jesus all the time. Um, and I think that there's something there. You know, Jesus is obviously totally against what Satan does. You know, they cast Satan out of heaven, you know, and... Satan wants to destroy Jesus. He wants to destroy everything about him. So it would only make sense for demons to be active. And your question is, are we ignoring it today or are we not seeing it? I think there could be something to that. You know, because we know Satan is alive and well. We know he's working. But what, what of it is demonic? or demonic possession where we have to exercise. Um, I think it's probably more out there than we realize. Yeah, unfortunately for us, uh, Jesus had the ability to recognize when something was truly demonic or when right. it was 
physiological or mental, you know, th- this right. is why, Absolutely. you know, borrowing even from an incident in Mark, at some point, you know, these kinds of demons must only be cast out by prayer. And that is just relying right. on God to do all that work. Prayer and but the word it, of God. Right. Absolutely. And that's pretty much the only thing you can rely on anyway. But, you know, right. I, I'm thinking of these disciples as they're heading out into these these places. He's not necessarily sending them into places they're familiar yeah. with. No. He's sending them out into foreign places where they're going to be, I guess, just very vulnerable. Not only are they going without the things needed for the body, they're going to have to rely on, of course, God, but also the kindness of strangers. But in many ways, the people whom they're going to have to rely on are the same ones that they're going to with a message that says, you are worshiping the wrong God or gods. Right. You are wrong. I, I, you are destined for hell. Um, what a difficult task to to right. go out and proclaim to the same people who you have to uh, rely on. It kind of sounds like modern day ministry in some ways. Yeah, it, well, absolutely. But what I find interesting here, you know, they went out, proclaimed that people should repent. But it doesn't stop there. You know, they don't stop with just, hey, you're damned, you're going to hell, you're sinners. But they continued with a different side of their ministry that Christ enabled them to do. You get the casting out of the demons, and then you get to anoint uh, the anointing with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. So they were enabled to, to heal others as well. Uh, and then sometimes I, it's not mentioned here. Um, I actually don't get it till later on in the ministry of these guys. But with repentance, if these people repent, there's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be grace. Uh, so I, I just wonder if something else is going on here too, you know. But you know, they they get well, these like miracle. Your- I was going to say, I like your point that they don't just go out and they proclaim, hey, you're going to hell unless you repent, and then they head on to the next town. They're building relationships with them. They're healing their sick. And and look at how their ministry really emulates Jesus's ministry that they've been watching throughout the gospel. Yeah. Cast out demons. That's what he did. Anoint with oil. He preached repentance. He He healed them. He cast out their demons. So, yes, they're doing what they're called to do. You know, in our current context, obviously, you know, healing the sick, that's not our job. But we go out, we visit, we form relationships. Uh, We may anoint them with oil. And who knows, maybe we'll be called on to exercise a demon. We don't know. But, you know, uh, everything that's happening here is surrounded with the word of God and prayer, too. Naturally. Well, why don't why don't we keep on going in our text? Because um, even though we're getting close to the break, I want to go ahead and make that shift because there is a palpable change in tone as we there see is. Jesus sending out these apostles into the world to proclaim his righteousness, to pro- proclaim the word of God. And then, well, let's hear what our text has to say, starting with verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, 
whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, I know that's in the middle of the text. I just want to pause there, and we'll probably reread it when we come back from the break. But let's get started in this already. So it, it, really, if we look at verse 13 and into 14, it's such an abrupt change. They cast it out is. many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King of Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So when it says King Herod, I'm assuming Antipas, Herod Antipas, when it says yep. King Herod heard of it, doesn't that mean that the disciples were going around casting out demons and healing people who were sick? That's the it, right? I, I would assume so. You know, if you're any if you're any writer, uh, you need a referent to the it. So you do have to go to the previous section, but I don't think it's just the casting out demons and the healing. I think it's also proclaiming that repentance, proclaiming Jesus, because obviously uh, for Jesus' name had become known. So these disciples, uh, well, back up, you know, Jesus' name is already being known based upon what he's doing. Uh, but now you have the disciples, there's 12 more guys, six groups of two that can go to other places. So his name is just going to uh, become even more well-known. So, uh, yes, the it, I think, is both 12 and 13 here. Yeah, the and of course, yeah, them doing that in Jesus' name, and, and then Herod hears right. this name Jesus, and he goes, well, what are they proclaiming? Well, they're proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and right. he goes, oh, Who's the last guy that I heard was proclaiming, you know, <laughs> repentance for the John, forgiveness of sins? The guy that I had it beheaded. Was, yeah, right. So this must be John. Oh, my goodness. Well, I tell you what, folks, we're going to keep getting into that same thread when we come back from our break. But for now, let's listen to these messages. Don't go anywhere. Pastor Nielsen and I will talk to you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Well, 
Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Mike Nielsen. He's the pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Barron, Wisconsin, and we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 6, verses 7 through 29. Before we head back into our text, I just want to remind you again that if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, you can reach out. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook. You can even call into the studio if you'd like, 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or comment out on the air. All right, Pastor, before the break, we had just sort of tiptoed into this shift where now King Herod Antipas is hearing of Jesus's name and all this proclamation. And I presume he's going around saying, who is this guy? Because the text tells us that some said it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said, well, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's one of the prophets of old. But John in verse 16, that's the guy who Herod thinks it is. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. All right. Well, I guess it'd probably be a good opportunity since Mark does it for us to lay out a little bit about why or who John was, why he was beheaded and why Herod Antipas cares. <laughs> so, uh, so John, uh, John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, a relative of Jesus, <laughs> Uh, as we're now getting close to November, and we know the time of November is going to go fast and we'll approach Advent, we'll hear a lot about uh, John at the beginning of December. Uh, so John the Baptist, uh, he's the guy, you know, he proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was the guy that was baptizing. He was the guy that baptized Jesus in the Jordan when Jesus said, or when John said, Hey, Jesus, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. This has to be done. Uh, so so, G, so John, uh, he's, he's really the last of that style of Old Testament prophets who's uh, preparing the way for the Lord. And now here, Jesus is on the scene. Um, so, so that's a little bit of background of who John the Baptist is. <laughs> but why does Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, really care about who this guy is? Well, um, I, 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 the, the story is just going to lead to why he cares. Uh, but as we read before the break, <laughs> John was saying, hey, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You you can't do that. Uh, uh, so John was, or uh, not John, but Herod, he, he was upset with um, John. So he had John put in prison. Uh, and, and that's kind of kind of where we're at. Uh, but uh, th that end of the, um, of 20, uh, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. So Herod was afraid of him. So while John's in prison, he's got some extra security detail, so to speak. So he's not, uh, he doesn't want to have him harmed. 
is really what's so going on her- here at this point. And really, it's Herodias who's holding the the grudge here. Uh, oh, right. Not necessarily right. Herod. So Herodias, for those who, you know, that's the wife of Philip. That's been the whole problem. Um, she was a granddaughter of Herod the Great. So her first husband, Philip, and her second husband, Antipas, in, who's also in this text, were both sons of Herod the Great by different mothers. So that makes them um, her uncles as well as her spouses. So it's right. a very, but you know, that wouldn't have very been completely strange, right. strange, well, uh, sinful yeah, it, it makes for relationship strange, here. Yeah, literal, literally strange bedfellows. But at the same time, this wouldn't have been completely unheard of in this culture. No. And and even though we're talking about Jews here, they're heavily influenced by their by their uh, Roman and Greek counterparts. And so, right. yeah, so John speaks against it because it's against God's will. And of course, you know, Herod is afraid of John in the sense that, well, I don't know. I mean, do you think Herod's afraid of John because he recognizes that John has power from Yahweh? Or do you think he's just afraid of the political ramifications I, of killing John? Uh, what do you think? I, I, I think it's the political ramifications. Because if we fast forward to when, when the Pharisees and the scribes and uh, the, the elders of the church, they want to uh, get rid of Jesus, you know, they were afraid too. And why were they afraid? Because of the, the political consequences that could come about. Uh, so, you know, obviously the text said, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. Sometimes I wonder here if this has any um, parallel with Pilate. You know, did Pilate really want to have Jesus executed? No. Um, because he knew that Jesus was righteous and really he knew that he was innocent, didn't do anything wrong. Um, but you know, but there's political stuff going on too. Sure. sure. There's a mixture of everything going on here. Well, if either one of them, Pilate or Herod had the right kind of fear of Yahweh, (laughs) fear of John or fear of Jesus in Pilate's case, then that would actually be tantamount to faith. But the fact that they, um, well, that's even, true. even if, even if they resisted, I think the fact that they allow these things to happen at the very least shows that they were not convinced or did not act right. in faith. Uh, right. So, so yeah, but, but still, still there are political ramifications to take, to consider. I think when it says righteous here, it just means innocent in the sense that, right. you know, he believed that he didn't deserve what he was getting, but let's right. look at verse 21, continuing that narrative. Because it ends with verse 20 saying that when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. He loved hearing what John had to say and teach, but an so, opportunity so, came. Well, hold, hold on. Go ahead. Can, can, we just, can we touch on that last sentence there before we go on? Yeah, please. Um, so when, when Herod hears him, he's greatly perplexed. You know, so, so what gets into our mind when we hear greatly perplexed, you know, confused. Maybe he's intrigued. Uh, Maybe he's like, I don't buy this, but hey, I'm going to listen to you. Uh, So as I read this verse a couple times this week, preparing for this, I kept thinking, what's the Holy Spirit doing? You know, he's hearing him gladly, you know. I, I just wondered, 
you know, about that point. Go ahead. I think, well, as you say, I think when it comes to our own proclamation of the gospel, if we had to choose someone who was perplexed but wanted to hear more and someone who just dismissed it outright, obviously we'd be very happy with someone who was perplexed. And I think if we're honest about the gospel message, for those, especially those who maybe have not considered it or uh, it's outside their culture, then it is extremely perplexing. I mean, we're talking about a a triune God, which is, uh, you know, a conundrum in itself. The son of God becomes 100% human, 100% uh, God, and he dies, but he and the father are one. And he's, you know, it's a very, uh, it is something that can only be received by faith, which of course is what we testify. So I think that perplexingness of the message is a good thing because that's why he says he heard him gladly. If nothing else, he's amused by his message. But we don't care what the motivation is for people hearing the message right. because we know that the Holy Spirit's the one who works faith. Right. He's going to be the one that works faith. But we, we get that big but we're going to hear what. <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, it literally begins. Happens. With, yeah, it begins with the word but. And that's what's going to happen now. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. So she went out, and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came back in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and laid it in a tomb. That's the end of our text for this morning. Also, that's the end of verse 29. So a couple of things stand out to me. The first of which is Herodias' daughter comes in and dances. Um, It's pleasing. And the king does what kings do. He's probably a little inebriated. He boasts, I'll give you whatever you want. I'm so pleased. And she runs to her mother and says, what should I ask for? I have to imagine, and I'm being a little, little, uh, uh, I guess, uh, sarcastic here, but I have to imagine that this young girl, is not very interested in the head of John the Baptist. It's obviously mama who wants that. And I bet she was greatly displeased when she told her, well, ask for the head of this John the Baptist when the girl's probably thinking, oh, I don't know. I was thinking of jewels or a castle or a bunch of land or, but no, it ends up being the head of John the Baptist. Take us through this narrative. It's a, it's a strange one. This is a strange one. So an opportunity. So Herod, it's Herod's birthday. Uh, he gave a banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. So Herod's surrounding himself with the important people. Um, uh, this was, as I was reading about it, this was a Hellenistic uh, thing that happens. Um, these parties, honor, his honor was growing. Um you know, pe- people seem to be respecting Herod. Um, so then we get this party. Um, 
and Herodias's daughter came in and danced. Uh, so typically, uh, women, females, were generally not allowed into parties such as this. Except for things maybe such as this. And the other thing to note about the culture is that erotic dance by a family member would have been shameful. <laughs> but in Herod's case, it's not all that surprising based upon <laughs> the family dynamic, so to speak. Uh, so <laughs> notice it said Herodias's daughter. Do we know who her dad is? Well, that's a we question don't. I certainly am thinking, right? <laughs> right. So we know that Herodias has two husbands, right? Philip and Herod. So uh, this is either Herod's niece or it's his own daughter. You know, do we know? Not. We, we aren't told. Um. Uh, so, but whatever it was, it was ple whoever it was, it was pleasing the king. Uh, and we can probably guess what type of pleasure he was getting. Uh, well, and I was just going to, yeah, just to be really actually kind of straight out about it, you know, these female entertainers, these are, let's say, erotic diversions. So whether it's his niece or his daughter, none of that makes it any better. Right? No, no, and, and it we, doesn't. And we also see, we also see King Herod king of the Jews, engaging in this Greco-Roman culture, dancing right. banquets, it it shows you how much that he's not really there as a representative of the Jews while being no. occupied by the Romans. He's, he's part of, he's part of the establishment to use a modern right. Uh, term. Right. Right. So uh, as he's, as he's, you know, as he's, um, has this pleasure going on, he says to her, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And, and then, uh, and 23, there's an important word in here. He made a vow. This is important because, uh, could he, could he go back on his word? Well, it's a vow. He could not go back on his word. So I, I'm assuming that he was thinking, oh, this young girl, yeah, she's going to want jewels. She's going to want wealth. Uh, maybe she even wants to control half my kingdom, which is why he says that. So, so I think when she comes back with her mother's request, he, he could be just as surprised as she is. But... Um, but she, uh, if we look at 25, after Herodias says, I want John the Baptist's head, uh, does, uh, does Herodias's daughter uh, uh, kind of stall? No, she runs back in. She goes back with haste, you know, and I can only imagine her words of, I want you to give to me at once the head of John on the platter. Uh, so, so we think, you know, we're thinking our minds what she might want, but she goes to her mother for advice, not her uncle, 
not her dad, whoever is who here. Uh, but there's also this loyalty here. Who is she loyal to the most? And then I, I, I read this. It seems like this girl is as nasty as her mother, you know. Because if John, you know, would hear about this, what would he say to what would he say to Herod? What would he say to Herod's or uh, Herodias's daughter here? You know, it's not lawful for you to do this. Uh, so I so she's as eager to get rid of him here. as maybe her mother is, and I think right. there's probably at least some uh, let's call it um, circumstantial evidence to suggest that all of this is a plot. Uh, by both of them, or at the very least Herodias, maybe she sends her in for the purposes of, uh, you know, soliciting this request because oh. she knows that the king is going to be tipsy. She knows that it's common for kings to make these absurd statements to boast in front of their guests. And so she's That's thinking, true. well, maybe this will all play out exactly as I hope. Well, and you're well, right. She be. came in immediately with haste. So she was, it, there is sort of a, a sense of eagerness for her to go and either please her mother with this request or get what she's also wanting. Yeah. Uh, very, right. very interesting kind of thing. Right. It is. Um, and, and then what do we get in 26? Uh, the King was exceedingly sorry. You know, th this is not repentance type of sorry. This is, Oh, no. I'm caught between a rock and a hard place type of thing. Uh, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. So does Herod want to harm John? No. But he made an oath. He made a promise. His guests are of our noble, uh, you know, they're important people. So if Herod would have broken his oath to his own family member and it ultimately to his wife um what uh <laughs> would he ever be trusted in the kingdom again probably not so as he's going through this in his mind he immediately sends the uh an executioner they get uh, john's head um, and notice who got the head. Was it the king? Who got the head? Herodias's daughter. And where did the daughter take it to? To Herodias herself. Uh, Herod wants, doesn't want this head in his birthday party. Yeah, it definitely, and we look at this birthday party party sort of situation too. You know, he's he's celebrating himself, and I, this is really going to detract because there's one thing to see a lovely young woman dancing and performing. It's a completely, uh, it's definitely a buzzkill for the whole party to then dr bring out on a platter a bloody head. Um, right. I, you know, I think that, of course, he's being hyperbolic when he says, give me up to, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And, and he could have break his oath, of course. Uh, but as you pointed out, it's really about this embarrassment. And he's also still making these decisions. And I think this is why it's important. We understand that all these things he, are happening. He, he's immediately. making decisions when he's inebriated. 
Right. He's still making these decisions while he's inebriated because the next day, I think he could have easily said, especially with none of his guests around, well, of course, I'm not going to listen to that. Of course, right. I'm not going to keep that promise. You know, I'll do what I want. I'm the king and he can, you know, right. within limits. And so we have here uh, also a situation, I think, that re that reminds us about being cautious to not jump in with oaths and, and, you know, swearing by other people besides our own yes or no. It causes us to right. be cautious about, you know, what we, what we promise. And I, and I right. know that's sort of the, probably the least of the messages to take away from this, but it's certainly one of them. You know, here's a guy who's on the verge of belief and yet what distracts him? Uh, drink, women, friends, all the usual suspects, uh, you know, yeah, power, right? Uh, reputation, his own um, selfishness and pride, right. all of those things. And we have to be very careful that while God gifts us these wonderful things to enjoy in right ways, we can certainly uh, we can certainly be led astray. Absolutely. And here it is in many, many, many ways. All right. Well, looking back over all of our texts, um, what are the last things you wanted people to take away from? Anything that you maybe so, have forgotten and anything else so, you want so the people to know? I, I, I ended on 28. We have to talk about 29 too. So when oh, his yes. disciples, his disciples, John's disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and laid it in a tomb. So what's Herod doing? Or well, the disciples, uh, first, the body has to be released from Herod's possession. So Herod, he's trying to salvage some sort of reputation with John's disciples to bury John's body. Uh, so John's burial here, uh, as the note in my Bible says, uh, prefigures the internment of Jesus. So John's disciples, they're, um, they're, they're burying uh, their friend, their teacher. Uh, but what, what I also find interesting here is that, you know, we, we started off with John or Mark, six, uh, seven to 13. But uh, this whole thing about John's execution, that this was not, you know, in chronological order, so to speak. You know, this is uh, kind of a memory, Mark bringing this back out. Um, and what I thought about here, uh, some of Jesus's disciples where who? John's, some of John's disciples. So I, uh, that was kind of uh, an interesting thought that I had too, as I was finishing uh, prepping for this. Yeah. And that prefiguration, I think it's interesting. It certainly recalls it for, uh, at the very least, you know, his disciples, they come, they take his body, they lay it in a tomb. And of course, John's well, he's not getting back up, at least until the resurrection. Jesus came out of that tomb. So we even right. see here, even in sort of this reflecting memory kind of form, we see the progression of God's mission. You know, Jesus right. wept when he heard of the death of John, but at the same time, right. it was bound to come because John must decrease so that Christ could increase. And that's what Absolutely. we see here happening. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, I think it's fascinating, too, because we're not going to get into it today, 
but we're coming out of Herod's birthday bash, probably a very impressive feast. And then we move into the next section, which is yet another feast. But this time it's Jesus feeding the 5,000, obviously a lot more if you include the women and children, and he feeds these people from the scraps. And so even as we move into our lesson that we're going to take up tomorrow, we see the ministry of Jesus progressing and probably why Mark puts the Herod situation where he does, because now we see a couple of juxtapositions. We see the disciples being sent out and we are excited for them, but we know the struggles they'll face. We'll see John the Baptist being beheaded because he spoke truth to power. And then we're going to see Jesus comes and he provides a feast feast greater than even, of course, King Herod could produce. And so I, I think we see the movement of, of Jesus's ministry throughout Mark, and it's been pretty exciting. Well, we are here at the end of our time together, but I definitely want to make sure I say thank you to my guest this morning. It's been the Reverend Dr. Mike Nielsen. He's the pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Barron, Wisconsin. Thank you so much, brother, for being on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, folks. Well, as I said earlier, Mark's going to take us from the Feast of Herod's birthday bash to the greater feast that comes from Jesus. That's going to be on tomorrow's show. Exhausted from his ministry, Jesus and his disciples seek rest, but, well, what happens? They're besieged by the demanding crowds. Evening falls, and Jesus has to perform a mass feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children with mere scraps of food after which he does retreat alone to the mountains before then miraculously walking upon the sea to join his beleaguered disciples. And their reactions shift from terror to awe as the winds cease upon his approach. And then Jesus is immediately inundated by the sick again, yearning just to touch his cloak. Human desperation relentlessly pursues Jesus, but every time it finds divine compassion and power. We're going to talk about that and a lot more over the next few episodes. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.